Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon. And uh, today we are honored to have probably the godfather of, of modern UFO studies, Jacques Vallée. Welcome, Jacques. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, it's, an, it's an honor to have you back here on Engaging the Phenomenon. And, you know, anybody who's watching this is going to be familiar with you. And if they're somehow not, they're brand new to the field, go check out, you know, one of Jacques' books. He has a, a ton of some of the best books in the field. I think he's one of the most forward thinkers in, in, in modern UFO history. Um, so, again, it's, it's a true honor to have you on. But one of the reasons we have you on here today is because you wrote a new book recently uh, called Trinity, The Best Kept Secret. And you actually have a second edition now that has included even more data into it. So for people watching and listening to this, can you explain what the Trinity book is about? Well, this is a, a case um, into which I was invited by Paola Harris, who's a, a well-known Italian uh, reporter and uh, researcher who now lives in the United States and became aware of that case. And uh, the, the, the case happened, um, it, it's very unusual because the witnesses did not report what they had seen for over 60 years. The case happened back in 1945 in New Mexico. Um, Paola heard of it through a, a, a local newspaper in New Mexico that uh, had reunited the, um, the, the two witnesses who had gone off in their separate lives. The, uh, an object was seen on a ranch 20 miles from the Trinity site of the first atomic bomb in the summer of 1945. The, the object arrived out of nowhere uh, two days after the capitulation of Japan, and it crashed, it did a controlled crash on a ranch owned by uh, the family of Mr. Padilla, Faustino Padilla. His son was there um, taking care of the cattle, taking care of the ranch with uh, a friend of his, the two were kids, but the main witness, the first, the first witness to the crash was actually a bomber pilot was coming in for a landing at White Sands inside the, the very wide desert expanse of White Sands where the atomic bomb had been exploded just one month before, there is an air base. There is a, a, an army air base. The Air Force did not exist in 1945. The pilots were in army uniforms. And the, um, the control tower calls this bomber pilot who is coming in for a landing, asking him to check into a communication tower that has lost power. He circles the, that big tower, which controls aircraft communication in the north end of the range of White Sands and sees that the tower has been hit by something, it's bent and it doesn't broadcast anymore, it doesn't communicate anymore. But he also sees an egg-shaped object in the bushes. The bushes are on fire 
there is smoke and fire, and he sees two little kids on horseback next to where that apparent accident has happened. So he reports all this to the control tower and to the army at White Sands. Uh, the, the witnesses that we have investigated, that Paola investigated, and I continued with the one who is still living, um, were nine and seven year old at the time. Of course, all the adults were in uniform were uh, either in the European theater or on ships in, in the Pacific uh, with the, the Japanese war, which continued. You know, after the death of Hitler, the war was not over. The war continued in Asia, the war continued in Japan. And uh, the, uh, the two kids know that when there is an accident, you have to bring help to whoever is there. And so they, they rush to the scene and they discover essentially a large egg-shaped object. They are going to call it an avocado. It's the size of two trucks. It's very heavy. It has plowed a boulevard down the hill, stopped against a, a, a berm in the landscape. Landscape I'm, I've become very familiar with because I've gone there uh, with Paola five times to continue to the research on the land and continue to, uh, to, to look for additional witnesses around the, around the place. So that's what the book is about, is that, that entire investigation, which continues. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, even in, in today's current conversation, you have the connection between, you know, UFOs or UAPs and, and nuclear assets so um, is what, what struck you about this case? What stood ab out about this case, say, compared to Roswell? You know, Roswell is a famous crash retrieval case. This Trinity case was lesser known. What brought you to the Trinity case that stood out? Well, the Trinity case was not known at all. In fact, when we first published the book, the number of, uh, of ufologists said, you're making it up. I mean, if this had happened, we would have known about it. Well, uh, there are very good reasons why it was kept secret by the people who recovered the craft. We, and we know pretty much who they are. And, uh, and also by the witnesses. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, was so fascinating about the research is reconstructing what the, those times were like. Um, First, it was ingrained in the local population around ground zero that if you see something, you don't talk because they, they knew, the army knew that there were spies around. In fact, several of them were caught later and executed. So the, the, the whole population knew that you wouldn't talk about when you saw the army doing something, it wasn't for you. It wasn't for you to get into it. So. The, the two kids had been told that again and again and again, and they, they never spoke. They kept it as their, as their secret for a long, long time, until about 10 years ago, when they were reunited through their school and through uh, other interests that they had uh, that re reunited them. One had gone on to the war in Korea, 
The other one had become a businessman in Washington and they had gone into in different careers. The, so why wouldn't you find that along with Roswell in the files of the Air Force? Well, you know, there's a number of good reasons for that. There was no Air Force. The Air Force was uh, brought into existence by President Truman two years later, 1947, the year of Roswell. The C there was no CIA. The CIA was created in 1947. The term flying saucer was not in the English language. Remember, Kenneth Arnold is going to be talking for the first time about flying saucers, about what he saw when he was on his aircraft in the state of Washington over Mount Rainier. So all of that is two years in the future. There is no knowledge, there is no awareness in the population of something like flying saucers. And in fact, in the book, in Trinity, there is no disk. The object was not a disk. The object was, as I said, an avocado. It was an oval X-shaped object, the size of two trucks. Um, the inside was uh, about 12 or 13 feet high. The total height of the object was about 15 feet. I mean, this is not a hoax. This is not a balloon. Uh, we, with, in various ways, we've estimated the, the weight of the object it was between two and four tons. Uh, yes, it fell after hitting the tower, but an aircraft would have broken into pieces. It's a giant tower, 65 feet tall, controlling communication over the first, the, the north end of the range. And um, the, uh, the, the object kept going and it plowed, again, it plowed the boulevard down the hill under power. The question for me when Paola brought me into the case was, was about the physics, you know, what is it made of? How much does it weigh? What kind of power could it have been using and so on? Putting it in parallel with other cases. And the book is really about not just one case because one case is, is interesting, of course. And, you know, ufologists have always said you know, let's find the best case. And they say it's Roswell. Well, Roswell is very, very interesting, but there were no witnesses at Roswell. You know, here we have witnesses that we can place at the site before the object arrives. And when it arrives, they watch the accident, they watch the whole thing. And then the two kids are going to watch the recovery and the recovery is going to take eight days. So they are going to watch the entire process and we have all the details. You don't have that at Roswell. Uh, they also, there are three of the people that, you know, we know their testimony have gone, had gone inside the object once it, it was uh, available on the ground when the, uh, before the army got involved. So we have a very, very good description of the dimensions and uh, of the entire situation. The, the reason the kids didn't speak, I can take you there to the lo a local eating place. You'll still see the posters from the time. 
the army posters where you have, you know, a smiling GI who says, why don't you have a cup of coffee with me? And we're going to talk about something else. You know, you don't talk about what you've seen. That's not the conversation. Let's yeah. have a nice cup of coffee, you and me. Okay? Then you see those posters in the, in the local eating places. <laughs> and the, the, kids, the, the kids took their father, took Mr. Mr. Padilla, father, to the place. And they, well, the father had reported it to the state police, to the state authorities. And uh, someone from the state was with him in a patrol car. They go inside, the adults go inside. When they come out, they sit the kids down and they say, look, this is not for you. This is not for us. This is for the army, it's for the military. You don't talk about this ever. Are you going to get the family into trouble? It's our ranch, it's the family ranch. So we're going to help you know, the army in whatever they want to do, but we don't talk about it. It's not for us. And they will follow that for 60 years. They'll never talk in school. When they wanted to talk to each other at school, they would take their, their lunch, their sandwich, and they would go off and sit down outside the school to talk about what they had seen. Uh, because it, it kept, you know, it was very vibrant in their minds. And they had dreams, they had nightmares for a number of years afterwards. And, uh, when you speak to Mr. Padilla today, his memory of, of every detail is still very sharp. Yeah. So why, why isn't that in the records? Because I've worked, as you know, I've worked with Mr. Bigelow. I've worked with a cadre of people from the government. I, I was part of, you know, I helped build the database for the, the uh, uh, classified project from ATIP, you know, or the Bigelow Aerospace uh, Project. Um, and I, I, we all had the same clearances. And the, my uh, co-workers on these projects had never heard of the case. The reason they've never heard of a case is that in the United States, there are at least three different ways you can get a clearance for secret knowledge. One is the State Department that has all the foreign country knowledge and so on. Uh, and they, they report through a, a particular channel. You have the Pentagon that has, you know, uh, uh, the, all the classified secrets, uh, uh, secret and top secret and beyond top secret uh, on mainly defense, but also related areas of the government. And then there is the atomic secrets. The atomic secrets are segregated. This object landed on the on land that was, it was private land, it was a ranch, but it was part of the atomic complex around where the first atomic bomb had been exploded in Project Manhattan. So the secrets were the secrets of Project Manhattan, you know, not, not the Air Force, not, not classified as a, the quote normal uh, military secret. And we know it through different other documents that we found 
that we, we, we know testify to the fact that this, the UFO secrets of the, in the Atomic Energy Commission and later today the Department of Energy are classified higher than the atomic bomb. And they are still there today. And if you, if you are not working in an area that's related to the, the nuclear secrets, you would not have access to, to that device. Again, the Air Force didn't exist at the time. And uh, this was land that was controlled by Project Manhattan and Project Manhattan owns the crashed object. And now is it just that say like, for instance, the Atomic Energy Commission or now the Department of Energy has UFO programs, or is it just that they have a reporting system that has that categorized? The, um, let's jump to uh, the mid fifties, I think 1956, there was a wave of uh, UFOs over Washington that right. has been brushed away as uh, anomalous radar returns. Well, yeah. those radar returns came from uh, a, a lot of UFOs that were flying, some of which were seen visually by people that I've reported about in, in my books um, who say, no, no, no. I mean, they were radar reports, but we went out and we saw them in the sky. And those were not temperature inversions, all those, uh, those other physics, you know, distractions. Uh, those were real UFOs and the a number of jets went after them, both Navy and Air Force jets. One Navy jet was authorized to shoot at a disc that he, it was pursuing. Uh, they were flying in forbidden airspace over the Pentagon and over the White House. So there was no question of, you know, that the, the military was going to intervene. The military took off and that pilot was authorized to shoot. Shot at a, one of the disks and a piece broke off. The, he, he looked at where approximately where it fell and then there was a ground search and they found the piece. I know that from two different sources, including the man who was head of the um, photo interpretation service uh, initially at the CIA, but became the Armed Forces Photographic Interpretation Service. He was a man who found the, um, uh, the um, uh, rockets in Cuba and, uh, and told the president about it. So the, he had been called into that case as well. And at one time he had custody of part of that uh, piece that was broken. And uh, I knew him because I testified at uh, uh, a couple of congressional hearings about the use of computers in government. And he was there and we compared notes about the UFO subject. The, that piece that was broken off, a part of it was turned over to the Canadian UFO project. Canada had a, an official UFO project for a while. The officer who took that piece there told the head of a Canadian project, quote, in the United States, this subject is classified higher than the atom bomb. 
Right, the Wilbur Smith memo. So we know that from, you know, both what happened in New Mexico and that statement in Canada that was put on the record. But where does that piece of material go within the United States? I, I uh, don't know that. Okay, because, yeah, a lot of people speculate, um, you know. There are lots of pieces. I mean, with, uh, as you may know, uh, Dr. Gary Norlin and I at Stanford have uh, started a, a, a study, a systematic scientific material study of um, uh, various kinds of materials that have been recovered. I've turned over my collection, which includes a collection from, Peter, from Dr. Peter Sturrock, also at yes. Stanford, who yes. has published a number of papers about the analysis, especially the isotope analysis of uh, fragments of UFOs or material deposited by UFOs. And we've uh, just published, uh, Dr. Nolan and I, uh, and a, a couple of friends have just published the first refereed scientific paper in a major um, astronautics publication, you know, about the analysis of uh, some of those uh, some of those materials. So we we hope that that publication opens the door for other scientists to do the same thing. Now, uh, you know, and there are fragments like that all over the place. Um, I have been given um, some fragments from France that were recovered by the the French space agency. The space, French space agency had a meeting recently in Toulouse where I spoke um, about the recovery at Trinity and about programs to continue those, uh, those uh, scientific analyses. That's ongoing now. And, uh, you know, it's, on, it's, it's just good science. I mean, that's what you do. Yeah. So sometimes you talk about the control hypothesis. And um, so in regards to that, right, do you think that these crafts and these materials are literal things of technology or, or and, and say the entities too, do you think that they're actual biological entities or a tool for some kind of higher intelligence? So, you know, that's a big, that's a big open question uh, that uh, people have sort of resisted asking, but I think that's a right question. Um, that, you know, another question that uh, is related is why should a piece of very advanced technology, I mean, obviously the, the object at Trinity was, um, was, was high tech. Um, the kids, so when it was on the truck, on the army truck, ready to go, they could look at the underside. The underside was undamaged in spite of the crash and it would have contained any propulsion system, then it was only about four feet by two feet. So what kind of propulsion system is? I mean, there is a whole series of questions that really haven't been asked. I mean, they've been raised, but they haven't been studied very well, uh, you know, by, by the uh, people interested in, in the subject. So there's a lot of work to be done. Another thing to be asked is why would this very sophisticated device come in over 
the forbidden airspace where the first atomic bomb has just been exploded a month before and come out of nowhere and crash there? Is that an accident or is it a gift? Um, obviously that thing had still had power. Um, it uh, made sure that it was noticed and you know, with a fire and breaking the tower, it destroyed communication over White Sands, over parts of White Sands um, that had to attract attention of somebody. And then, um, you know, this was two days after the capitulation of Japan and the end of the war. Uh, shouldn't we pay attention to that? Isn't that some sort of signal? And remember, we haven't used the atom bomb. Now we're talking about using atomic bombs again, which, you know, to, to me is incredible that we would even contemplate that. But, you know, that's uh, the, the, the way history works. But uh, the fact is that since those days in 1945, we haven't used the bomb in anything more than experiments or tests. It has not been used in anger. The temptation must have been really big in the war in Korea, when we had all these people dying, uh, you know, to terminate the war. And it wasn't used in Korea, it wasn't used in Vietnam, it wasn't used in, in the other contemporary wars by either side. Um, is, that a, you know, is that a signal? I mean, we know that those things have been taken very, very seriously at a very high level. The higher level you go in the Pentagon or in other structures of government, the more you find people who know about the history of UFOs and have followed the history of UFOs and are interested in research about UFOs. It's only, you know, at the at the lower levels that you have all this confusion, you know, uh, uh, look at all the mistakes, look at all the errors, we don't know, we need to do more research, you know, all that, uh, all the academic uh, arguments and so on. But, uh, you know, at, it's known that there have been uh, very, very discreet meetings at very high level uh, between Russian authorities going back to the USSR uh, and, uh, and, and, the, um, and the Pentagon. Uh, if only because whether you believe in UFOs or not, we react to UFOs when we see, when we have radar um, signals that indicate something that potentially could be a, an attack. And there, are, there have been three cases just in the US where the B-52s have been alerted in response to mistakes in tracking by the radars, okay? I mean, the radars were, were tracking something that wasn't an attack, but the, the procedure was such that the trajectories were such that the alert went up three times. And yeah. so three times we were within 10 or 20 minutes of uh, nuclear war. Uh, this is this is a speculation, and it's a story, kind of about what you said. Like, 
the Soviet Union had meetings with the Pentagon about this subject because of the danger it could cause if there was a false alert. So th there's a story about something called um, Starfish Prime or Operation Dominic, where there was a high altitude detonation of a nuclear um, weapon in the in the um, Pacific, and that that Starfish Prime incident included a crash retrieval because the EMP that set off took something out and it crashed in the water and was retrieved. Are you? Well, I don't know about that, uh, but okay. uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not, a, you know, an authority on uh, uh, nuclear nuclear policy and so on. Uh, in in most cases, I think that uh, tests are uh, uh, signaled to other countries so that nobody gets too excited. You know, I mean, it, it's generally known when a a nuclear test is going to take place somewhere, so that uh, uh, there is no, you know, there is no reason to hide it because it's going to be visible anyway. Right. Yeah going to be known anyways. So, uh, so you know, you know the, the fact that uh, there, there was that much interest and there is that much interest now, I think is, um, is, you know, is highly relevant to that, that whole history and it starts at Trinity. Yeah. And um you know, again, with with UFO retrievals comes up the idea of our, or, you know, what people are calling now the, the UFO legacy programs. Um, is that something that you, in all your research and investigations have come across the, the, the legacy efforts or legacy programs? Um, you mean of uh, objects that have been recovered and now being studied somewhere? Uh, possibly, sure. yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, it's, um, you know, when you work in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, b before something can be classified by the Pentagon, somebody in Silicon Valley has to invent it. So you, you work alongside people who have been part of different programs at different times. And by now, uh, you know, things that were classified, uh, you know, in the 50s or 60s um, have somehow resulted in things that we use every day, you know, in computers or in, in medicine or in something else, and including radioactivity and so on. So the, it, it's known that uh, there there have been a number of uh, objects or devices that um, have been, and we know that through Cardinal Corso, of course, and his book and his, you know, his testimony, which by in an, in general is absolutely accurate about the the devices that he um, that he delivered to a number of labs at the request of the army. Uh, to have them tested and so on. 
Um, the, I, I had occasion to work with someone from IBM who was a materials, one of the, 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 the best material scientists at IBM working on, especially on magnetic memory, who had been given, and he actually showed me a, a, a piece of it, he had been given something to test in his lab because his lab was equipped with very, very special instrumentation. And he had been approached to test it. And, um, you know, it came from a, a crash and he could uh, describe the structure, but he had no idea how you would make it. And he had no idea what would you would use it for. You know, it was like, you know, like the idea of a, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, being given a, a garage door opener. If you don't give him the garage at the same time, he, he won't know what to do with it. So the those things, we I mean, those projects have existed and there is a pretty good idea of where these objects would have been taken. Uh, we know the, I mean, Paola and I know where the Trinity object was taken. Uh, it it would have been taken first uh, inside White Sands to secure it, but then it wouldn't stay there because there are no labs there. It was just the place where the bomb was assembled, but all the parts of the bomb came from somewhere else. And the somewhere else was primarily Los Alamos, which is you know a short distance north of there. Uh, you have to, uh, you know, I, I've had to understand some of the, language in New Mexico, short distance means driving four or five hours, you know, oh my in New Mexico. Yeah. But um, uh, Los Alamos is a short distance, by that standard, a short distance from, from Trinity. And uh, after that, we don't know where it would have gone. But uh, of course, the, the labs were there at Los Alamos and all the security and, and everything else. And from there, it may have been broken up uh, into specialized labs, literally around the country. And with, so with the, the new language that's talking about amnesty for, for people that have participated in those programs, do you see that as something, you know, if that, if that actually occurs, what, what do you think will happen from there? I, I think it, it has to occur. I think there's too much pressure now. This is something, as you know, I, I worked many years with uh, Dr. Hynek, uh, and this is something that he kept asking for, you know, in, in testimony to Congress and in contacts with, uh, with congressmen in Illinois. He were, had been close to some of the members of Congress in, in Chicago and in Illinois and had occasion to speak with them. And um, he was always asking for that. You know, give amnesty to these these men and these women. Um, I, you know, I think the idea has been picked up in Congress, and it's absolutely the first thing to do, and that would open uh, an entire new age for for the research because those are the people who, especially in the military, but in in other related areas, those are the people who were there. Um, and the, it, it may not be that easy because, you know, even going through the Air Force files, um, which 
which are mostly um, unclassified. As you may know, I went, I spent four years with my wife going through the Air Force times and uh, redoing the classification, um, you know, the, the, and that's when you found the Pentagon memo, right? That's where I found the Pentagon memo, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And which was still stamped secret when I found it, which was a problem. Most of the other things may have been classified, but were declassified. Essentially, all, all the data that I was working with at the time was, was unclassified or declassified. But, you know, there were there were things that uh, had been classified, but when I when you read the description, you know, Mrs. So-and-so went out to her garden and saw a light. And I would say, you know, I would uh, tell Dr. Heineck, why does this have to be classified? With copies to the CIA, NSA, you know, NRO, you know, all those initials. And he would laugh and he would say, well, it was classified because at the time, um, you know, there was a radar nearby that this thing may have been part of a test of some sort. And it was a new radar and the radar was classified. I mean, the object itself, nobody cares about. Yeah, Everybody yeah. cared about the radar. There was another case of a boat um, that was, uh, everybody on the boat had seen this, this, this object. And, uh, but the, the object again was, was not very interesting. And uh, when I looked at why it was classified, and by then I had at that time a classified uh, 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 schedule. Uh, well, that boat was, uh, you know, within a mile of the coast of North Korea. And so it wasn't the light that was classified. It was where the boat was. Yeah. It wasn't an ordinary fishing boat. So the, the, there are all these things that people will have to learn about the way that stuff works, you know, in the, in the bureaucracy of uh, handling those reports. Uh, there are a number of people who've seen something, but they may have seen something in co such conditions that they are not going to let them testify. Right. You know, because it's it's too recent or it's too it's strategic, or they were using, um, you know, they they were using devices that that were sensitive, uh, that or they were at a particular place that was sensitive. So yeah. we may not get just a flood of things all of a sudden. I mean, it's going to be filtered. Yeah. Do you think? Still, still it's a revolution. Yeah, but but if there is somebody who comes forward from like a legacy program talking about retrieve materials, possible reverse engineering as far as trying to see see how the technology works, right? Because they're not going to reverse it. <laughs> um, well, yes. do you think that would be made public, like in some way, like confirm to the public that there's a material that we didn't develop? Um, I. I... You know, right. I have no authority on, on how that, that kind of speculation would work. Right. But uh, I, I would think that the public is ready for it now. You know, at the, one reason that maybe 
again, who am I to question what the government does? Okay, but there there may be reasons that I'm not aware of as a scientist or as an investigator. There are good reasons for keeping it secret. But in in the old days, yes, there could have been distrust. There could have been panic, local panic. Although I don't believe in the big general panic and so on, but there. I, th I think the public is mature enough to handle that kind of thing, even back in the 60s. But by now, uh, you know, we've had over 500 men and women have gone into space, you know, for extended periods of time. It's no longer the big mystery, you know, something <laughs> terrible yeah. is going to happen. I mean, we have gone to the moon. We have landed on the moon. We've taken things back from the moon. We know that uh, we can go to Mars, even as a commercial, you know, as a commercial project, we could go to Mars. So those are things that have been demystified. The public isn't going to, they may wonder, there may be questions, you know, there are religious questions, there are spiritual questions attached to that, that are legitimate, but, you know, it's, it's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a major surprise for for people in in most countries. And as far as speculation, because you know you've called it the gifting fields, um, there's there's speculations as to whether you know anybody. Let's I'll just be more vague, and I'll say anybody. I'm not going to say the United States uh, has either more than just fragments. Like, is is there like a full craft somewhere? That's what that's a speculation. Oh, I, I think the thing that um, uh, landed in in Trinity, uh, they it only lost one panel. That was, and and we know what the recovered the recovered properties of the material from that from that panel. And I have similar material from other cases that we're going to study. Um, so we, it's very strange. It's been compared to fiber optics. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Colonel Corso for a couple of days, thanks to Mr. Bigelow and, and the team. And uh, he described those fibers that he had. Uh, it's not fiber optic. It's uh, a little bit more sophisticated than our fiber optic. But it's, uh, it, it, it looks like fiber optic. And I have, I have some of it from other cases. That's exactly what the kids at Trinity uh, have described, you know. Uh, and uh, so those things we need to take to a good lab somewhere. I'm sure other people have done that test. And what I'm not sure, what nobody is sure of is whether they got anywhere with that study. Because, you, you know, um, a, a classified uh, engineering study is difficult to do. Uh, somebody brings you something out of Czechoslovakia that's supposed to have some strange power. You take it to the lab and you take it apart. It's not obvious that you're going to understand what it does. Um, I, I, I've been told by someone who was in that business, that you get only about eight, you know, eight, eight out of 10 cases, you cannot tell what it did. Yeah, you know, yeah. it may be just something that it failed, that it didn't work. 
you know, yeah. and that you got a reject. But even if you don't get a reject, you get something that does something. You know, even in electronics, I mean, I go in and out of labs in Silicon Valley, you know, in my work. And uh, usually I go there with someone who explains to me why it works and what it does. But I, I, if I had to discover it by myself, I would have to assemble a team of people from different disciplines and work on it for you know, a couple of months before we could tell yeah. why it's put together that particular way. So the, uh, it may just be that they, they have different parts of things. Also for security reason, they wouldn't give you the whole thing. You know, yeah. if you're an expert in magnetic memory at IBM, they would give you one thing that looks like a magnetic memory, but they wouldn't give you the propulsion system. Right. So right. It could be something that comes from a lab in Russia or China or something else. And you would, they wouldn't necessarily tell you where they found it. Yeah. It'd be one thing. And with that one thing, you couldn't reconstruct the whole, you know, the whole elephant. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I wanted to get to something else because you included it, I believe, in the appendix of the of the Trinity book and the um, the mention of the, the Wilson Davis memo. Yep. And I, I know you can't comment on the veracity of it, but when was the first time you saw the that memo? Um, well, you know, Eric and I were, were part of a group that met fairly regularly to, to look at the scientific issues and, and yes, so on, yes. as you know, I mean, I've, I've published uh, some part of my diaries about that. And I was mainly the, uh, you know, the, the, the computer guy, uh, keeping archives and compiling databases from different places. Uh, so I, I was aware of that memo when we first looked at it, and uh, and then we never spoke about it. Uh, I think, you know, it was it was up to uh, Eric uh, to disclose it, and he didn't disclose it. Um, right. It, you know, it came out because it, because uh, Edgar Mitchell, you know, Dr. Mitchell, Captain Mitchell, had a copy uh, in in his uh, archives, and it was found after his death. So. No, I mean, we, we knew about it at least uh, eight years before it was disclosed. Yeah, because it was like disclosed in 2019, I believe. But he, the, you know, the purported meeting occurred in 2002. And, you know, even uh, Leslie Kane went on the record and said and she saw it in 2008. Uh, Richard Dolan had seen it in 2006 or 2008 around then as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you, you saw it in the earlier, like the end of the NIDS days. Yes, in, in the early 2000s. And did that, did that influence uh, part of your story and Stratagem? No, no, uh, Stratagem was in my mind an old story. Um, the, it, it, Stratagem is a novel uh, it, it's not a very good novel, but, but <laughs> it's not a very good novel because I wanted to stay close to a scenario. I thought if I were to build a scenario, 
of what I think has really happened. What would it be? And I didn't want to do it as nonfiction because, you know, most of my writing is nonfiction. And I don't want my readers to be confused, you know, with imagination and so on. But I wanted to write, to, to take it into a novel that was essentially a scenario. What if it had gone like that? Yeah. And where would it have gone? Who would be the people who would be most affected by the existence of, you know, of a parallel civilization somewhere um, with very advanced physics that was manifesting here? And what would be the things that we would see when it was displayed to us? How would it appear to us? And who would be concerned? Well, the, the people who would be concerned would be, you know, first line would be the military, which we know it was. Uh, very quickly, the military would say, gee, it's not a threat at our level. I mean, it doesn't shoot us. So, and we've got many other things to do, which is essentially what the Air Force did and later what the Defense Intelligence Agency did. You know, this is not our job, okay? But it, it may be real, it's probably real, but you know, it's not us. Uh, and take it to somewhere else. Well, the, the somewhere else would be the intelligence community, which is well equipped to look at this. Uh, because it does research in advanced technology uh, that the Pentagon may not be aware of or interested in. But the people at the end, the people who would be, who would have the most to lose about this would be in economics. Yeah. And so in, in, um, in, um, uh, in, in the novel, he follows the trail because, it, you know, for a very personal reason, a series of very personal, intense, emotional reasons, he's driven to follow the trail. He's not a super technologist, but the trail leads him to a foreign bank. Yeah. Not to, you know, Lockheed, not to IBM. Not, I mean, it's been yeah. there, but the, the ultimate test can only be, and the, the, I know because of, you know, some of the things I've done in venture capital over five different funds, including the NASA uh, venture capital fund at one time. Um, and that had nothing to do with UFOs, right? Well, uh, in the novel, it is a UFO. I mean, but the, the technology, you know, the, the, the financial community has much better secrecy than anything else you can think of, including the CIA. Yeah. And I, there's two questions I wanted to ask you about forbidden science. Um, I mean, the, uh, the first question is in forbidden science number four, uh, you know, you, you made a journal entry. It said that you had secured a document confirming that the CIA had staged UFO abductions in Brazil and Argentina. It would, what is, can you, and you don't have to talk about it if you don't feel comfortable, but would you be able to explain the context of that? Yes or no? The well, context. Uh, 
No, but um, you can, you know, if, if you look at uh, James' movie about Brazil, I mean, it's pretty good, you know, knowledge that the U.S. was interested or in watching the whole thing. Uh, when they say in, in the movie that, you know, the Air Force uh, and NASA uh, went to Brazil to, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily true, but there are other organizations that would have gone there. Uh, I don't see why NASA would have gone there, uh, you know, with that, in that particular incident. But in foreign countries like South America and so on, NASA means some sort of American group came and right, they right. always think it's NASA. Um, they, they, as you know, there are many, many organizations in the US who may have had an interest in it and an interest in space other than NASA. So, um, I, I, you know, I think you have to take that with a little bit of humor. But yes, uh, that's happened before. But that such such a document exists that is talking about that kind of the the I mean the document that you mentioned in the journal it exists somewhere. Yeah, uh, I mean, interest has existed for a long time in. Uh, retrieving things that came from other countries for, you know, and, and occasionally exchanging it. Uh, I mean, Trinity is a good example of that. You know, we took that, that piece of a, of a craft that was shot over Washington and shared it with Canada. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the document is talking about staging abductions. Is that something completely different than a retrieval? Well, there would have been interest in that as well. Yeah. All right. And so do you have a Forbidden Science Volume 5 coming out? Uh, yes. And, uh, y you know, I, I think of that. I, I think my readers by now understand that I'm interested in more than UFOs. You know, yes. I'm interested in life itself. I think life is a, a remarkable phenomenon. And the, the things we go through in even in our you know personal lives i find them amazing you know yeah. i mean not just the coincidences and the things but how how do you know what you know and you know, why do you love the people you love and I, how does this happen and i i'm sort of fascinated with that that's what drove me into research in the first place ufos are one of several topics that well, fascinate me where I try to learn from, you know, my uh, uh, the better scientists than I am. <laughs> and I'm going to continue doing that. So I, I take pains to have not just the edited diary, but also an index and lots of notes for people to use. That's what takes the longest time is compiling yeah. a good index and so on, because those I think of as uh, you know, and they are not not big sales. I mean, very few people are interested in reading a diary. I mean, most diaries are pretty boring. But not, they, not yours, not yours. I think your uh, diaries are some of the most explosive in the entire. That's some of the most explosive reading in UFO research is Jacques Vallee's diaries. Yes, but they, 
you know, and he said, <laughs> why is he saying this on page 160 where he said the opposite on page 70? Yeah. Well, I changed my mind between page 70 <laughs> and page 160, you know. That's why I changed what? my mind because I found something or somebody showed me why I was wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I wrote a, a, a book about it, uh, you know, that was a textbook and so on, you would not see that. You would not see why that I was wrong, you know, a year before. Uh, I and, would just give you the, you know, the, yeah. uh, the professor's, you know, lecture. And this yeah. is this is the real stuff. So, in, so it in takes va- time to index it and to put all the data that people are going to need. Yeah. So, so two questions here. For Forbidden Science Volume 5, what years is it going to cover? It's always, and, ten, it's always 10 years at a time. Okay. Okay. Is it 2000, 2010? Okay. Wow. So it, think of think of it as a delayed blog. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I don't, yeah. I don't keep a blog. You know, I it's, I do it 15 years later. Yeah. Is is does that have anything in it about the Wilson Davis memo meeting or anything like that? I I, I leave uh, that to Eric. I think he's the authority on that, and he knows. You know what? Uh, he knows the details. He knows the conditions. Uh, I was just, you know, a witness to part of that, um, and to the discussions that surrounded it. Uh, and you know, I have to respect the right. What the, kind of discussions were uh, around it? Anything that you're all, you can talk about respectfully, or no? I, I would rather not. I think. Okay, uh, for sure. I understand. To to, to Eric. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I, and I just have two more questions, really. Um, this this is a real kind of side-off question, but it's something, It's it's been a quote that has fascinated me for a long time. In, and again, you wrote this, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago, I don't know. Uh, you have a quote from Messengers of Deception, and it says, uh, we also need to begin a kind of research that will take UFO data as empirical observation and try to use them to initiate an interaction with the UFO phenomenon itself? Well, um, you know, people have asked me, there was this case, you know, back, uh, why didn't you go there? You call yourself a ufologist, you call yourself a scientist, and you didn't go there. Uh, well, take, uh, take the case in Brazil. I mean, I, I went to a number of places in Brazil, as you know, but I didn't go to that particular place. Well, um, you know, my response is very clear. I, I don't do ambulance chasing, you know, just because CNN has been there and NBC has been there and Walter Cronkite is talking about it, doesn't mean I have to jump into an airplane and go there. You know, what am I going to bring? You know, I, I went to Trinity for a very special reason. Yeah. That Paula Harris was a researcher I respect. And, you know, a good reporter, she's a very, very good interviewer. You know, she relates to people, she loves people, and she did an extraordinary job of recording several times the testimony of the major witnesses in the case. And she invited me into that case that everybody else had given up on. Mufon had given up on it. A number of people had gone there and filmed some stuff and said, well, just a couple of kids. It's not just a couple of kids. You know, it's an incident 
reported by a bomber pilot two days after the capitulation of Japan, 20 miles from the place where the first atomic bomb has opened up a new era in human history. How can you miss that? Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so I went there and I went there again and I'm going to go there again. Yes, uh, we're tracking that story. As you know, we found one more witness. Uh, we're going to find other witnesses as time goes on. We're not going to let go of that story. So, you know, that's, that's my, my mode of operation. I don't go to, if, if it's on the first page of the New York Times, I, I probably wouldn't bring anything to the, to the research. You know, I mean, it's too late. I, I want to go there um, and the, the cases that stay with me the most and that I continue to work on are cases where the witness has not reported it to anybody, but they've read one of my books or they've seen me somewhere and they think that I can, I would understand what their family is going through, that I would treat them understanding the, the trauma, and they I could bring in sensitive experts who could look both at the medical psychological condition, as well as the, the material conditions, and not tell anybody if they don't want the story to go out. And those are the cases that, um, that I continue to work on. Yeah. And, and not going to be, you know, uh, in a newspaper somewhere until, and they belong to the witnesses. They don't belong to me. And I'm yeah. uh, honored to have been part of, you know, of the research. Yeah. Do you, do you think that there's anything to the, to the idea of, you know, baiting UFOs, um, either with nuclear instruments and or like an, ex like an experiencer, somebody who experiences high strangeness? Um, um, I, I've, uh, I've tried to do that. Uh, and, I, I, and, and failed. On the other hand, all kinds of other things have happened that I wasn't necessarily prepared for that uh, similar to what other witnesses describe, but uh, it wasn't from my, my baiting anything. No, yeah. I, I tried to, you know, I, I built a, a little observatory in the middle of nowhere where there couldn't be other signals. There could be, there, 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 I mean, there was no cell phone uh, in the middle of the forest and um, hope that something would happen. A couple of things have happened, uh, but I wasn't the primary witness. Um, and uh, that the, the phenomenon, whatever it is, has a very strange sense of humor. Right. Uh, and it places things, I think, if you were to interview Mr. Bigelow, I think he would tell you the same thing. I have a lot of respect for the experiments that Mr. Bigelow has done and for what he's gone through and, and, the, and the rest of the team, of course, but he himself has 
uh, I think has deeply understood that that uh, interaction, the type of interaction that takes place. And it's not a, you know, it's not a regular dialogue. It's much more complex. Right. So my, and that triggers my computer science, you know, background um, because some of that would be buried in the databases we've got. And what I'm afraid of yeah, you haven't asked me what keeps me up at night, but uh, <laughs> what keeps me up at night is that now that those databases are you know, pretty much out, as, as you know, we built the mother of all the databases during the mass project, and uh, people are going to put layers of AI on top of it, and the poor AI is going to go off in all kinds of directions because part of the work, the hard work hasn't been done. Um, and uh, not our fault, but it just wasn't done. So if they put a layer of AI on top of it, it's going to go off in the wrong direction. But if you did it right, and you don't need a lot of data to do it right, then um, you would get to that level that you're talking about of what, what the interaction is like uh, at the more subtle level. Um, We've done that in, to some extent in Trinity by comparing the three cases, you know, of uh, uh, the case in, in, in France, of course, in, in Valence and Socorro. Yeah. Now, we, you have three cases with three avocados, you know, no flying saucer in the whole yeah. book. The, the object is an egg-shaped object in all three of those cases. In all three of those cases, the, the beings that the, the, you have excellent witnesses, the witnesses describe the same beings who breathe our air and are humanoid. Now tell that to a biologist. Well, I was going to say, what do you think that means? I mean, uh, people have like the crypto terrestrial hypothesis or ultra terrestrial hypothesis that they're indigenous somehow. Um, I'm, I'm not a biologist. You should ask Dr. Nolan. Um, <laughs> to me, yeah. they look like uh, artificial humans. Right. And, uh, but they are identical in all three cases. So maybe somebody should look at this, at the correlation. Yeah. Uh, people shouldn't be focused entirely on Trinity. They, the book is about three cases, two of which are state investigations not investigations by MUFON or APRO or QFAS, and although they do a good job, but those were state investigations. The FBI was there at, at Socorro on another case, but they, they were interested in the thing and they, they helped gather the evidence. Socorro, uh, there are things about Socorro in, in our book that have never been published before and that can put to rest all the stories and all the speculation that it was some sort of hoax. There's right. no way. Uh, and we know that from, you know, the evidence that brought in, in, in our book. Uh, and of course, the case in Valençon. I was involved in all three cases now. So yeah. I, I know them fairly intimately. And uh, I've, I've been to the place in Socorro. I was working with Dr. Heineck at the time. You know, I was at Northwestern at the time and part of the team. Um, and uh, 
of course, I've gone to Valençal, I've met the witness, and I've met the other witnesses who've never testified. And again, uh, in the media of France, you know, in the south of France, when people see something like that, they are not terribly interested in talking to the police. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they are going to keep it as their, you know, a signal to them of, of something very personal and you have to gain their confidence before you can do that. Yeah. And what strikes me now is that there are a lot of people, you know, before Congress and so on, who've never investigated a case on the ground with the witnesses when it rained or when it snowed and, and so on, and, and done their the hard work. And those, are the, the, those people exist and they need to be brought in before Congress. And they will tell you that Congress has only looked at five or 10% of the cases because I've only looked at the military cases. Military right. cases are in special circumstances. They are very good because of the sensors involved and the quality of the pilots and the observers. What about the other 90%? Yeah, you know, 99%. Anybody going to look at them? Yeah. And I, I just have one more question. Um, the idea of like um, UFOs and consciousness and uh, interaction, like, you know, people will say they can do a meditation and have uh, a UFO interaction from that. Um, I would not question their, you know, their personal impression of that. Um, I, I'm not really qualified to uh, assess, uh, you know, whether, whether that was true or not. Um, if you could do that in the lab, monitoring the brain, you would know more. But I don't think you could answer that question to the satisfaction of most, you know, even most um, uh, brain experts. Um, you could, uh, you should talk to Dr. Green about that because he's done those experiments. Uh, and a number of his colleagues in, in medicine have done those experiments. I don't know where that stands today. Uh, yeah, because uh, I mean, I don't know, you know, what you could pick up on the brain, but say you were able to do it and you were able to track anomalous activity in the field. Would, would that even be helpful? Or it's, is that still like, you, there's nothing you can do with that data? I would, um, you know, if, if somebody does the experiment, I'd be interested in learning about it, but that's all I could do, would be learn from, from that. Uh, I, I've, um, I've looked into about 70 or 80 abduction cases, but always, through experts, uh, not by myself doing hypnosis or anything like that. Right. Um, I've, uh, and some of the experts I brought in were hypnotists, but they were also experts in the brain. Um, and I've never published uh, any of that because I, I, I don't think I can, uh, uh, first of the field is so confused today it would be just one more drop of confusion on top of everything else. People have very, you know, personal ideas about it. 
and it's almost a, a, a religious thing. And I, I don't think I could add anything that would help. The, right. the it will have to be picked up by experts from a different direction. Yeah. Well, Jack, it's 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 really been an honor having you on. Um, do you have any parting words for the audience? I uh, yes. Uh, we have to change gear because the 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 old attitudes of stigma and so on have been removed. I mean, you know, there was that meeting in the National Cathedral in Washington with the head of intelligence, uh, the, the head of astronomy at Harvard, and the head of NASA, and a couple of other people saying, this is not something we understand. It's a new phenomenon. There should be no ridicule. There should be no stigma attached to people who have done research on it or have testified personally about seeing those things. It's a new era for research. So we are on day one you know, of, the re- <laughs> of, the, of the new research. And I'm very grateful that I'm still alive to see it, you know, at my, at my advanced age. I think of, uh, you know, with sadness at people like Dr. McDonald and Dr. Hynek and, and many others uh, who were hoping to see that day and worked to bring it about and couldn't see it. But we see it and it's a great, you know, it's a great gift. It's, it's wonderful. It is, it is, you know. Uh, you know, but again, thank you so much, uh, Jock, for coming on. And, you know, everybody go check out Jock, uh, his newest book, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret. And I hope to speak to you again soon. My pleasure. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye.